Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Loved going through Exodus with you all, but I love these New Testament epistles, especially the book of Romans. What a treasure this is for us. But before we begin into the message proper this morning, I did want to do just some introduction to the book. Every time we start a new book or we go into a new genre or something, I like to give us a little bit of context so that we don't get ourselves into the trap of what we're going to be talking about this Wednesday and throughout the summer on Wednesdays, that we don't look at a verse or look at a passage or, or some topic from Scripture and rip it out from its context and thereby misunderstand it. To understand the text, we must understand the whole text, where it fits within the passage, where it fits in the chapter, the book, and the entire canon of Scripture. And so this morning, I just want to start with a brief introduction to the book of Romans as we look today at Romans 1, 1 through 7, the call of God. First, let's do what we call the date and the occasion of the writing of the book of Romans, written, self-claimed by the Apostle Paul to the church that is in Rome. Uh, no one really doubts the authenticity of the letter. No scholars really doubt that Paul wrote this letter, as there's some contention and disagreement on other letters. Uh, there's no real doubt about who wrote this and who it was written to, the Apostle Paul to the Roman church. There is disagreement about the date of its uh, authorship, and that doesn't really matter all that much, but most scholars agree sometime around A.D. 70, give or take a year or two. They believe that because Paul was in Corinth at that time, and many scholars believe that that is the place where Paul wrote his epistle or his letter to the Romans. Written by Paul to the Romans around A.D. 70 in Corinth, possibly. The audience in Rome was a mix of both Jew and Gentile. You're familiar with Rome. This is the height of the Roman Empire. It is the seat of power. It is the seat of the Roman Empire, just as much as we would look at all these other major cities that Paul writes to, whether it's Thessalonica or Corinth or Ephesus or Galatia. And we would look at all the things and the trade routes and the ports and see why this was a pivotal city. We, not, we need not really do that for the city of Rome. It was the seat of the Roman Empire, the seat of the power of the known world at that time for most of the people, as the Roman Empire stretched through most of southern Europe, around the Mediterranean Sea, even down into North Africa at the height of its power. We know that part of the audience that Paul is writing to is Jewish. There's a heavy Jewish population around the Roman Empire and doesn't seem to be any less in the city of Rome. We know that there are Jews in the congregation of the Roman church because Paul mentions many Jewish figures, Moses and David and so on. He speaks of Jewish theology. He quotes from the Jewish law and the Jewish history. In fact, the epistle to the Romans features the most quotations from the Old Testament than any other New Testament writing. Paul quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament writing here in the book of Romans. And later we'll see that Paul addresses this Jew-Gentile division head on. By the time we get to Romans 9, 10, and 11, 
we're head on into the disagreements and the problems that are created in the putting together of these two different people groups. And how does God's promise to Israel still stand now that he's reaching to the Gentiles? How do those two peoples fit together in God's one people, the church? We'll get there, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans is also a unique letter. We look at the date and the occasion, Romans is a unique letter in that Paul, at least to the point that he wrote this letter, had never visited the church in Rome. By the point he writes this letter, he's never visited that church. Unlike many of the other churches, maybe save Colossae, he has not written to, or not visited the church in Rome yet before he's writing to them. Many believe that after Paul goes to Rome, he does go to Rome, but it's under arrest. Remember Acts 27 and 28, Paul appeals to Caesar after he's arrested in Jerusalem, and it takes him all the way to Rome. Many believe that he was released there, maybe visited the church in Rome, maybe went on a third missionary journey before being arrested again and ultimately executed. But all that is extra biblical and it's just out there for scholars to debate. But as far as we know, Paul had not visited Rome by the time of its writing and we don't have any visit recorded in scripture to the church in Rome. In fact, in Romans chapter one, verse eight, we read that Paul has heard of their faith. Maybe this prompts him to write the letter while ministering in Corinth, that he has heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans is the lengthiest of Paul's epistles. In fact, that's why it's first, as we turn from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, the history of Jesus and the history of the early church, to the epistles or the letters. Romans is first, not because it's the most important, though many argue that it is, but because it's the longest, it's the lengthiest of Paul's letters, the lengthiest of any of the New Testament letters. But it's unique in that even though it's the lengthiest, the theology of Romans is the lengthiest. Most of Paul's epistles, I've gone over this with you before, begin with some portion of some theology and then go into the practice of that theology. Most devote maybe a chapter, chapter and a half to some theology of salvation and then Paul or whoever's writing begins to apply that theology to the Christian life. Romans is very different in that all the first 11 chapters of Romans well more than half of the 16 chapters. Chapters one through 11 are devoted not just to uh, sort of a bird's eye view theology, but deep, serious, detailed, systematic theology. And it's not until we get to chapters 12 through 16 that we have the application of that theology, that we move from this heavy, dense doctrine into what to do with that in the Christian life. And as Paul comes to the end of chapter 11, as we come to the end of that theological section, this deep, detailed, systematic theology, unpacking the beauty and the glory of the gospel and our salvation, it is so moving, so worshipful, that it leaves Paul quite literally breathless. As we come to chapter 11, verse 33, then, we see Paul can contain himself no longer. He has unpacked the beauty of the gospel, the awe and wonder of what God has done for us in Christ. And at the end of chapter 11, verse 33, he can't help but say, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And you know this one, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The doctrine leads Paul to that doxology. The theology leads to the worship, as Paul is left breathless with this warm, thrilling doxology. In fact, Romans is so captivating that many of the famous preachers, evangelists, and missionaries in history, maybe even you, were converted with this very letter. I could ask for a show of hands, I won't, but how many were led to Christ or at least were introduced to the gospel at some point using the Romans road of salvation? That wonderful little track that guides us through what it means to belong to Christ using solely the book of Romans. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was converted with his study of the book of Romans. Augustine, the great church father, was converted upon hearing the book of Romans. John Wesley, before they even began to read Romans, they was reading a preface to Romans, was converted hearing the words of Paul in Romans. To look at Romans is like standing beside you know, whatever brings, I was going to say the ocean. That's what I love. But maybe for you it's mountains or vast, wet grasslands or something. I don't know what it is. That brings you awe and wonder and worship. Wherever you stand, where you feel insignificant and small, for me it is the ocean as you stand there and look at the vastness of the water and consider the depths of the water and your smallness in relation to what you're looking at. That's what Paul feels at the end of chapter 11. I hope that's where we all come, understanding that that awe and that wonder is multiplied by infinity when we look at the depths of God. What else is there to say when we unpack the gospel except, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God? Perhaps in our journey through Romans this year, I think we'll be ending next March with some breaks in between for other things. You might be taken aback in that same way with the beauty, wisdom, the grace, the mercy, and the love of God in Christ. Let me give you just a brief outline, and I mean very brief outline of the book of Romans that kind of guides where we're gonna go on this journey together. Chapters one through four, deal with the nature of salvation. What is the gospel and how do we respond to the gospel? Namely, Paul will deal with that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. That salvation does not come because of obedience to the works of the law or to some church or some denomination, but it comes through faith in Jesus and what Jesus has done alone. That's chapters one through four. Chapters five through seven then follow up on that. Who is this Jesus that is the source of our faith? Well, chapters five through seven introduce Jesus as a sort of new Adam, the last Adam, whereas the first Adam squandered everything and plunged us into death and sin and condemnation, the second last Adam, Jesus, has come to redeem humanity, to redeem creation, to create a new humanity in him, the new family of God. Chapter 8 kind of stands alone as Paul describes the glory that awaits believers. Even amidst suffering and trials and hardships, nothing can break God's plan to bring his people to him in glory. And then we get into chapters 9 through 11 as we unpack further how we're able to say 
that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, as Romans 8 ends. Romans 9 through 11 takes us through the sovereignty and the power of God in salvation, in choosing and bringing this new family to himself and preserving them to the end. Then we come lastly to chapters 12 through 16, and all that theology comes to bear in application. Now I beseech you, brothers, according to the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, and the rest of the book shows us how to do that. But here today in Romans chapter 1, we come to the foundation. The foundation for Paul, the foundation for the whole Christian faith, the very foundation of the scriptures, and that is the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. Today we see what it means to be called of God, not just for Paul in his unique call, but for you and me sitting in here today as well. What is the call of God? Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. If this moth comes and attacks me and I start swatting, just uh, chalk it up to the Holy Ghost or something, but uh, pretend I'm excited about what I'm reading, and I am, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe that, that's going to happen. I'm looking out for it. Don't be distracted even if I am. Paul, uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First today, I want us to see Paul's identity. Beginning there in verse 1, and really just the first part of verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Who is this Paul that is writing to these Roman Christians who had presumably, maybe some of them, had never met this person before? Well, it's customary for Paul to give an introduction, and this, a lot of the language sounds similar to what he does in other letters, but it's longer, there's more details, and it makes sense. He's never met these people before, most of them, and he's introducing himself in a special way to them. Scholars point out that Paul identifies himself in three separate, sort of distinct ways. Number one, Paul says he is a servant, a slave, a bond servant that has a master, that has a task, that has a Lord. He is sold completely over to this one who is his master. Paul says in Romans chapter one, verse one, he is a slave to Jesus Christ. We'll see this concept of slavery come up later in Romans six, as Paul implores us not to present ourselves as slaves to sin, but slaves now to righteousness. We've been bought, we have a new master, a new Lord, and so Paul first identifies himself in that way. Number two, Paul says he's an apostle. A unique office, specifically called by the Lord Jesus Christ and an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. You see, not anyone can just slap the title apostle on their name and it's real. 
The title and the office of apostle was specific to this point in time for these men that Jesus specifically and verbally called to be his apostles, and they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Literally, the word means one who is sent, or a sent one. Sent from God, absolutely, but also Acts 13 and 14, as Paul is sent by his church to go and preach the gospel. He is a sent one, one sent by the Lord Jesus with the authority of the Lord Jesus and the special anointing of the Holy Spirit. He's sent with one mission, and that is the proclamation of the gospel to the world. And that's the last thing Paul identifies himself with, set apart. This master and this Lord who has called him to be his servant, who has sent him out with the gospel, has now sanctified, that's just a theological word for, set him apart for this task and for this purpose. Remember as we looked at the furniture of the tabernacle and the dressing of the priest in the tabernacle, remember especially the golden plate on the turban of the high priest that said, what, holy to the Lord, set apart to the Lord, not to be used for any other service or any other thing. That's what Paul means by being set apart, sanctified. Paul, as if it were, was stamped with that same phrase, holy to the Lord. This is now Paul's entire purpose. His entire life is given to his Lord, who has sent him to preach the gospel. In this introduction to this church, who didn't know Paul, who had never to this point received a visit from Paul, Paul establishes his authority to write them in this way. This is not just some letter from another Christian with nice thoughts. This bears apostolic authority, as if Jesus himself, God himself, were speaking to the people through this letter. Paul wants them to know he is not some self-styled apostle of his own calling, He is not after power. He is not after money. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He says what? I am a servant. I am a slave sent for and set apart by the Lord Jesus with this message. And what is his message? What is he set apart for? Let's read at the end of verse 1 through verse 4 as we see Paul's message. Paul says, I'm set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's calling and Paul's mission centers here in the proclamation of this one message. What he says is the gospel of God. The good news of God. When you see that phrase, I wonder how you interpret it. You see the gospel of God. Is it the gospel that is from God? Or it is the gospel that's about God? And of course, the answer to that would be yes. It is the gospel from God, and it is the gospel about God. But I want you to see it this morning as this is the good news belonging to God. God is the source God is the author. God is the designer of this good news. The gospel is from God. It is his, and it now comes to us. The gospel is the beginning and the sum, the whole of the Christian life and what it means to be a believer. 
And as such, listen, it did not originate from any man. It did not come from some tradition or a myth or legend or folklore or culture. This is a proclamation from God himself. Its author, its source, its designer, its architect is God. One of my commentaries said it this way, it is God's gospel and it emerges from his eternal sovereign plan and power. It is his good news, his message, and here's what's for us, therefore we cannot reshape it as we wish. Oh, how many churches, how many pastors wish to reshape the gospel as they wish. And there are many motives that go into this, whether it's to accommodate to an increasingly hostile, sinful culture, whether it's to water down the gospel to make it more appealing to modern sensibilities, or whether it's to compromise on issues of morality so as to not seem so strange to the world. Whatever the issues are and whatever the motives are, when we water down or compromise or accommodate the gospel to sin and to sinners, we are only giving in to those with itching ears and we end up changing the gospel into a non-gospel. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 about those who preach a different gospel? Even if we or an angel from heaven, he says, should preach a different gospel, let them be cursed. Let them be condemned because, Paul says, there is no other gospel. It is God's gospel, and it is what God says it is, and it is nothing else. So you ask this morning, well, what is it? Well, first of all, Paul's message is not new. Look at what he says in verse 2. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It was promised beforehand. The good news that Paul is preaching The good news that Jesus sends out his church to proclaim, the content of it was already there. First, in the eternal mind and plan of God, but then as he revealed it through the Old Testament, through the prophets and the authors of those books and those scriptures. God has already revealed this beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is no new message. This is not some new New Testament novelty that has been invented by the apostles or the early church. This is the same story from the Old Testament now continued and revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, this is why it's important to have a whole Bible. As helpful as pocket New Testaments can be, that is not the entirety of the scriptures. And I don't care what Andy Stanley or anyone else says, we cannot unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament. They go together. Back it on up, hitch it back up to the first thing, because without the first thing, you can't have the second thing. This is the same gospel proclaimed in the Old Testament that is now revealed in the New Testament. Paul says this is nothing new. This is the center of the whole thing. The Old Testament was nothing but a map to Jesus. He's what it's all about. And that's what Paul says next. The message is about Jesus. 
Verse 3, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. The gospel of God revealed beforehand. And what's it about? Rather, who is it about? As the now late Tim Keller said in his commentary, the gospel is first and foremost about who and then what. And the who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says, He was declared to be the Son of Man according to the lineage of David. It's important that He was a man, that God was incarnate in an actual true human being. And Paul says that this Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. There's something else there, isn't there? 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the promise God made to David. One of your sons will sit on your throne forever and his kingdom will never end. Paul is in no uncertain terms saying this Jesus is that son from David according to the flesh. He's the son of man according to David, but he's also the son of God. Look at verse 4 and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus was and is truly man. In the incarnation, the eternal Son of God took on real, true human nature. It was no illusion, it was no trick, It was no other nature. It was a true human, real nature because he had to be able to truly represent men even in our weakness to the point of death. But he was also truly God in that he did not just die as a man but overcame death and sin and hell as the God-man triumphant over all. In our pluralistic world, and theirs too, by the way, that Paul was writing, it's important that we see Paul is laser-focused on Jesus and Jesus alone. It's important to remember that any good news that we have from God is in Jesus alone and is about Jesus alone. Jesus is the sum and the substance of our faith. Jesus is the sum and the substance of knowing God. Another commentator commentator I read said, the gospel is not preached if Christ is not preached. The gospel is not preached if Christ is not preached. The gospel is not social activism. The gospel is not some political message. The gospel is not morality. The gospel is not social commentary. The gospel is not motivational speaking. The gospel is not inspirational self-improvement. The gospel is what God says it is. And without the preaching of Christ and sin and the atonement and the resurrection, without the preaching of the person and work of Christ, we have no gospel to give. Paul says this is the sum and the substance of the gospel, Jesus Christ. And if the gospel is not preached, Jesus is not preached. And if the gospel is not preached, there can be no knowledge of God. Salvation stands or falls on the person and the work of Christ. And you might ask this morning, well, who who says? 
What proof is, is there? Why should I listen to Jesus more than Muhammad or some other prophet or teacher or the Buddha or this system or this religion or this philosophy? Who is Jesus to command this kind of authority? Verse 4 tells us he's declared to be the Son of God in power by the Holy Spirit. By what? His resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is what decrees Jesus to be the very Son of God. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, literally, physically, corporally, as he got up out of the tomb on that first Easter Sunday morning, that is the validation. That is the certificate that it's true. And if that event is true, listen, if that event is true, here's the overwhelming truth behind it. If that event is true, It's all true. And if that event is false, then it's all false. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus has been raised from the dead. That is the certificate, the validation that Jesus is who he says he is. And notice the agency involved here in verse four. Paul says the spirit of holiness That's just sort of a Hebraic way of saying the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was at work there in the resurrection of Jesus. Just as he was there hovering over the waters at creation, just as he was there overshadowing the Virgin Mary, he's there over the empty tomb bringing Jesus back to life. And this shows us something very clearly here in these opening verses of Romans, as Paul does in all of his letters, by the way. It shows us that the gospel is Trinitarian. That the gospel is according to the will and the plan and the design of God the Father. That the gospel is about the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. So that to know God and to have a relationship with God as He is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is to know Jesus Christ as the only Savior and to trust him alone. The converse is also true for you here this morning. If you do not know and you do not trust in Jesus as the only Savior, you do not know God and you do not have the Holy Spirit. If you have Jesus, you have all there is to have of God. And if you have not Jesus, you don't have any part of God. The gospel is about him. The Father sends him. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will testify to him. This is the message of Paul. This is the core of who he is and what he does. And Paul says, this is what I do and I can't help but do it. 1 Corinthians 15, chapter, chapter 15, verses 3 through 4, Paul says this is the summary of the gospel, that the Lord Jesus was crucified for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. I want to pause for a minute and just ask you, if someone were to ask you, what is the gospel? Would that be your response? 
What is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus? That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. And what is our response to that gospel? Faith alone. It's that simple. It is that simple. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is that simple. And how we want to complicate it. That when someone asks us, or I ask you, what is the gospel, we think we have to give some complicated theological answer. Or worse, we're not informed enough to give a reasonable answer, and it becomes any number of religious language other than Christ crucified, buried, and risen again. Paul says that is the simplicity of the gospel. And he says in verses 5 through 6, this is what I've been sent with. Paul's commission. Look at verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, apostleship, that's a fun word, isn't it? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. It is in this gospel from God, of God, about God, from the Lord of this gospel, that Paul finds his marching orders. In fact, way back when Paul was converted and called in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Do you remember what the Holy Spirit told Ananias when he was to go, go, told to go and find Saul and to anoint him and to baptize him and to tell him what he was supposed to do? What was the commission that God gave Ananias to give to Paul? He will be my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and to all of Israel. From the very beginning, this is why God chose Paul and this is what God chose Paul to do. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16 says, I am compelled to preach this gospel. I cannot help but preach this gospel. And what does he say? Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul says, let me be judged and condemned if I don't do what I've been called to do. And that is to proclaim the good news of Jesus in this commission. This is a heavy, weighty call but it is not joyless for Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 5 see how he describes it as grace I received grace and apostleship to go Paul knew the grace behind this call for him 1st Timothy chapter 1 verse 13 Paul says I was a persecutor I was insolent. I was a blasphemer. But God showed mercy to me. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And his grace overflowed for me. This weighty, heavy, hard task that Paul has been given was given by grace and mercy. In his persecution of the church, in his hatred and his anger towards the church, in his rebellion against God and his grace, God in his grace nevertheless called this man to go for him with this message. What a high, gracious, awesome privilege this is to be a herald for the king. And that's as deeply and seriously as Paul takes it. He says, I have been called to go for this king and to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. I've been called to go and herald and command obedience to this king. Now we look at that and we see obedience and faith in the same phrase and it makes us a little nervous, doesn't it? 
We hear faith and works, and we have been kind of trained sort of subtly to think that they're enemies. We're saved by faith, not by works, so works don't matter. That is not the message of the New Testament. We are saved by faith alone in what Christ has done alone, but when we have that true salvation, it will produce obedience to the king of our salvation. James chapter 2 verse 18 says it this way, you say you have faith and I have works. James says, hey, I will show you my faith by my works. My works are the justification of my faith, which are the sole grounds of my justification before God. But faith is also obedience in itself. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 29, this is the will of him who sent me. You want to know what God's will for you is? You know what he commands you to do? To believe in the one whom he has sent. Faith is the sole grounds of our justification before God. But once we come in faith to that one who justifies us freely as a gift apart from works, as Pam read for us earlier, God then prepares us to do good works. And so Paul says, this is my commission, to preach the gospel and then teach you how to be obedient to what Christ has commanded. The last part of verse 5 says this is for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now we read that and we just think, of course it's for all the nations. They would have read that, some of them, and thought, wait a minute. Wait, what about Israel? What about the Jews? It's us, right? This is about us. Paul says, no, it's about all the nations. It might be for the Jew first, as he says later, but it is not for the Jew only. The gospel is for all the nations. That just simply means all the peoples of earth. You might even translate it that way, the Gentiles. I have come to preach the gospel to all people, including the Gentiles. That's what Paul was told in Acts 9.15 by Ananias. He's called to go to the Gentiles. It's what Jesus said to the church in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. What did he say? Make disciples of all Israel. Make disciples of all the Jews. Or make disciples of all nations. And that's what Paul says he came to do. I came to preach the gospel. I came to teach you what obedience is. In verse 6, it says, including you. That brings us lastly to your calling. We see Paul's identity, Paul's message, Paul's commission. But this includes you. To all believers, all children of God, the family of Jesus, this is what you have been called to. And before we get to the immense ramifications of what that calling means for us, how does Paul predicate that in verse 6? You who are called to belong to Jesus Christ... You who are called, and look at verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Paul was set aside uniquely and particularly as an apostle. We talked about those qualifications. Paul was set aside uniquely and particularly for a specific mission, to go and take the gospel to the known world at that time. The mercy and grace, though, that overflowed for Paul to call him into that and to empower him for that, listen, is the same, verse 7, grace and peace 
that has overflowed for you. When you were called by God to belong to Jesus Christ. When you, as verse 7 says, were called to be saints. We hear that word called and and we think of sort of just a, a sort of innocent beckoning. Hey, you know, come on over here. Come on, an invitation. That is not what this word means. This word called does not merely mean invited but it means brought into relationship with God by his own sovereign act. Listen to me this morning. The same grace and mercy that knocked Paul off of his feet on the way to Damascus, that same grace and mercy that spoke to this persecutor and said, you are now mine, is the same power that turned that light switch on in your heart one day when you came to your senses and you ran to Christ in faith, not because of something you did to merit that action or to cause that action on God's part, but simply because God in eternity past, what, verse seven, loved you. What did Paul deserve from God? Condemnation, judgment, wrath, anger. What did Paul receive from God? Mercy, peace, grace, salvation. What did you deserve from God? What have you received from God? Verse 7 tells you grace to you and peace. As Jessica sang earlier, grace and peace. How can that be? Is there still amazement in that for you this morning? Is there still awe in that for you and worship in that for you this morning? Or is it lost in the familiarity of it all? Has the wonder of it faded over time? The wonder of grace and peace that loved you before time began, that called you to be saints, that called you to be the children of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous British Welsh preacher, said it this way, it is almost impossible to believe it, and yet as certainly as we are alive at this very moment, we are Christians for one reason only, and that is that God has set his love upon us. How are you a Christian today? How are you saved today? How did it happen? And before you begin any sentence that starts with because I, we must stop and consider the truth that Paul presents to us here. It is not because I. It is because God. The call will come up several more times throughout the book of Romans and it always leads us to understand salvation and our assurance Not because of what we do, but because of what God has done. Paul has a unique call, a unique office, and a unique mission. But we all share in that ultimate call to belong to Jesus, to be the saints of God. And though Paul's mission was specific, we share it too. 
As we go to the nation to make nations to make disciples, what is our message? It's the same message that Paul preached. There's no other message to preach except the gospel of God according to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what is our command? It's the same command, the obedience of faith. Repent and believe the gospel and then bear fruit according to the gospel. Church, New Testament church, First Baptist Church, we may not be apostles, capital A, but we have the apostolic message in the good news of God concerning his son, Jesus. We have the apostolic power of the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, and that is the same power that is at work in us, calling us to belong to Jesus and then empowering us to share Jesus with the world. Here's the truth of this passage for you here this morning. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You are called to be saints and you are called to proclaim the gospel. Does that define you, believers? Unbelievers in the room today, you need to ask the question if you even belong to Jesus Christ. And if you're an unbeliever, you do not belong to Jesus Christ. You are not a saint. You are separated. You are far from God. If you're an unbeliever today, though, here's the good news. You may belong to God and you may belong to Jesus Christ if you will repent and turn to him today in faith. Hear the call of God to belong to Jesus and come to him. But if you're here today and you are a believer, Are you going with this message? Are you overwhelmed and in awe of the grace and mercy of God? Or has that faded? Today, believer, submit yourself afresh as a servant to this master, Jesus Christ. Go as little a apostles, little sent ones into the world at the command of your master. Be set apart for him, obeying him in all of life, especially in that command to go and make disciples. Go with that message. God's gospel about Jesus by the power of his spirit. And all of this is just an overflow of your identity in Christ. You are called to belong to Jesus. You are loved of God from eternity past. You are called to be his saints. And you must be fueled by that same grace and peace that has transformed your life in the gospel. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you today for the gospel. And we ask that as we've heard today about your call and your purpose for the Apostle Paul, that you will remind us of our call, our purpose, and our commission. You would remind us this morning as believers what it means to be called by God. And that we would revel in that, maybe afresh, maybe for the first time this morning, we would Remember the awe and the wonder that you would offer us your grace and peace to the vilest, the weakest, the least. You've given us grace and peace. Empower us by that grace and peace to to take that same message to a world that needs it, to a loved one that needs it, a child, a parent, a co-worker. Help us in your power 
to take your gospel about your son to a world that needs to hear it. Send us now by your Holy Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.